It is truly a blessing to be in a congregation with so many talents. If you're a visitor to this congregation, know that that is not the only violinist who abides here and that we have so much musical talent in this room that it is often a blessing for me just to walk in with no idea what Christy has planned for the day <laughs> and see and hear what is capable in this congregation. So this is my first auction sermon. Um, and I say that with the knowledge that Ann Steiner bid on my auction sermon last year, and you have yet to hear an auction sermon recommended by Ann Steiner. But, however, however, I will say that after one sermon that Ann really loved of mine, she said, I want that to be my auction sermon. <laughs> I said, okay, but you are welcome to still offer me a topic. So just so everybody knows, Ann, that is still on the table. And so this is my first auction sermon. And I wonder if they all begin the same way. And it, it, it comes sort of like, hey, thanks for bidding. What would you like me to preach on? Hoping that I have enough information to write the sermon or worried that I'm given a topic that is out of my wheelhouse. I still wait for the time that uh, Bruce Luria goes through his threat of buying my auction sermon. And, and I really will have to work on my theological wiggling. <laughs> but Rebecca Jones, upon winning this auction sermon, sent me an email. And I've edited the email a little bit. Can you expound on this quote? I couldn't track it down anywhere. Let me know if you need more to go on. And the quote is, instead of there but for the grace of God go I, we should say there by the grace of God am I. And I said, yes, I need more to go on. <laughs> because, because I can take that anywhere. In, in conversation, Rebecca remembered that the quote was from a UU World article called The Red Dress. I tracked down that article to a January-February copy of the UU World from 2003. Then I went online to the archives to find, the, to find it. Uh, but when I found the list of what was in that copy of uh, the UU World, what I found was that that article was not hyperlinked, so they did not have a copy of that article online. But now my hyperfixation and ADHD were too committed to give up. <laughs> I knew where the article was. I knew who wrote the article. I just needed to find it. And I know there's a UU minister out there who has every copy of the UU world. So I went on the Facebook page for uh, UU ministers, UUMA Facebook page, and I said, does anybody have a 2003 copy of the UU world from January and February? I need a copy of the red dress for my auction sermon. And uh, some ministers try to help and say, well, is it this? And I, don't, I, I want to politely say, no, it's not that until someone just finally responds and says, here, and has taken a picture of the article from the UU World. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. Two days ago, I didn't know who said this. I didn't know where it came from. And now, all of a sudden, I have a copy of the article as a photograph on my computer. I was like, bang, there it is, exciting. 
In the opening paragraph in uh, this article, as you've heard before, it says, some people might say of those they serve at a soup kitchen, there but for the grace of God go I. I think what they really mean is there by the grace of God am I. For surely God's grace does not single some of us out for privilege and allow others to suffer. Divine grace, however, brings us into dialogue with a stranger at the table in the stranger within. It acquaints us with the part of ourselves that is reflected in someone who is, by our definition anyway, deemed less fortunate. So the reason this article is no longer available from the UU world is because it was printed with permission from a different set of publishers in a book. And I suspect that they no longer had the rights to use the text of the article. But her story, as Rebecca read earlier, goes on to talk about service in a soup kitchen. And the author, Sarah York, seeing a woman come into the soup kitchen wearing a dress that she had donated, saying... The woman in my red dress gazed towards me but appeared not to see me. Her long wispy hair was uncombed and tangled into a lumpy knot on the crown of her head. The dress which I had donated thinking that perhaps someone could wear it to interview for a job hung loosely on her skeletal frame. It was wrinkled, torn, and askew. She was not on her way to an interview to be sure. Yes, it was a moment of grace that vision of rumpled red, there by the grace of God, I saw myself. Rebecca had said when we talked about this, she said, I want to do something on generosity. I'm going to stay with the theme. And I thought, perfect, this is actually the theme of generosity. So over the last three weeks, my central focus in generosity has been with this idea that there is an equality between those that give and those that receive. And when we fail as givers to see that equality, we do not just do injustice to them, but we do it to ourselves. Giving, generosity, generosity, giving with generosity means we're giving with compassion. Giving with compassion acknowledges the humanity and the equality and the dignity of this person, which is where... This quote comes so perfectly connected. She goes on, Reverend York goes on to say, our epiphanies of holy intimacy, our epiphanies of holy intimacy are a glimpse of the strangeness or the fear of strangers in ourselves. What I registered in my psyche that day was knowledge of what can become of us, even those of us who've grown up in a world of privilege. When I worked at a shelter that served mostly women and children, I was amazed at how many of the guests were in fact not much different than me. I love the phrase holy intimacy. It perfectly sums up the idea of connection and community in our relationships to others, especially to others that might be what some would call less fortunate, that remind us of our own imperfection and connect us to the depths of our fears. 
But let's take a look at these two phrases for a minute. There but for the grace of God go I, as Rebecca reported, and there by the grace of God am I. Let's start with the former. There but for the grace of God go I. This phrase is often attributed to an English reformer, Protestant reformer, named John Bradford, who was known by many as Holy John Bradford. He lived from 1510 to 1555. He was a chaplain to kings and a leader by example in England. And one day, while seeing a group of men taken off to execution, he proclaimed to himself, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. Bradford was, in that phrase, acknowledging uh, humility in that there was very little difference, real difference, between him and the men going to be executed for whatever their crimes happened to be. Lest, maybe, in his eyes, the grace of God. Later in his life, when Mary, uh, the, fir- uh, Mary the First would come to power in England, he would see execution from a different side. He was given a shirt of flame, which is a shirt soaked in oil in was burned at the stake for heresy. The phrase as we know it, there but for the grace of God go I, is an acknowledgement that there is little difference between those that suffer and those that thrive. Now let's move on to this other phrase, there but by the grace of God am I. This latter phrase comes from the New Testament, the writings of Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Now, I don't need to tell most of you that Unitarian Universalists have an often uncomfortable relationship with God, especially the New Testament and especially Paul. But I think there is something very special here, and I'll get to that later in the sermon if you just stay with me for a moment. See, Paul is talking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus and the appearances he made during that resurrection. And often in these contexts, you use like to focus on the scientific issues around resurrection. But for today, let's shelve that. Let's just take the text as it is and follow the story from Paul's perspective. So I will back up a bit and read this to you from 1 Corinthians 15. And this is in reference to Jesus during his resurrection. He appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. See, in this context, Paul's not looking to others and saying he could have been like them. He is looking at them and saying, I was them. If it were John Bradford, it would be him saying, I was the one who was being led to execution. I was the person that is not deserving of grace. But 
someone decided to take a chance on me. Reverend York's, po York's point in holding these two very similar, slightly different phrases together reduces the difference between the them and the I. The them and the we. To not simply say, I could have been in that situation, but to understand and acknowledge, I still could get to that situation. There are no promises made in life. Uh, York goes on to say, having known times of being on the edge financially, I understand what it means to be one paycheck away from eviction. Having lived with family members who were mentally ill or alcoholic, I am no stranger to the twists of circumstances that can land a person in the streets. Illness, unemployment, addiction, disability. Whose life has not been touched by at least one of these? Who indeed might we be if circumstances rend us, render us devastated by misfortune? Upon this, upon this reflection, our work to diminish the effects of poverty in the world around us and the reasons that lead one to affect or that lead one to do so are in fact more personal than seeing a them. Because when we look at the them, I'm not pointing to anybody. When we look at them, we are looking at us. Now part of the issue that Rebecca and I had finding this text was that we both thought it was from Reverend Rebecca Ann Parker. And it is clearly not. I have the name of the person it's from. We thought this for different reasons. Rebecca Jones is a big fan of uh, Reverend Parker's work, as am I. And to me, though, <laughs> this sounds like something Reverend Parker might say. At least, it's because I know that Reverend Parker and her co-author, Rita Nakashima Brock, spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in their book, Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded a Love of This World for Crucifixion and Empire. Both UU ministers willing to look into Paul to see why we are and why others are different than we are. See, Saving Paradise, and I meant to bring it with me, but I, I never remember these things, is a very heavy book. It's a very thick book, but I recommend it to anyone looking to understand why the Christian church evolved the way it did. Sadly, I cannot get too deeply into this book because I'm about to start the last page of the sermon, and it's too complicated. But her book uh, tracks the shift of Christianity from small interconnected groups that believed different things to the homogenation of a faith in the second millennia CE. Central to this shift, Christian leaders and Christians began to view their eschatology their understanding of the end times, their eschatology, differently. And they shift away, shifted away from an idea of even how they saw the glorified Jesus. Prior to a thousand, most, most big chapels and churches had pictures of Jesus with welcome opening arms. Following that time, the pictures shifted to Jesus being brutally killed on a cross 
bloody and broken. And we have to wonder what that shift from the glorification to the suffering meant or why that change was necessary. When I think of the majority of American Christian churches today, uh, especially the ones like the churches from which I came, and the people who identify themselves as part of them, and this is from someone who came from there, the goal of the individual is an individual goal that is in this world, and it's a response to fear, the way that Christianity is prominently proclaimed in Oklahoma and in much of the South that I spent a lot of time in. See, the purpose is to work in this world, and it's a fear response that if they do not work right, they are unable to get to paradise after they die. And if they do too much wrong, they will get into and be stuck in eternal torment, which means the only purpose for their living involves a passing of a moral test. They don't say it this way, but when I was in that faith, that is what it felt like. Because of this idea's prevalence, it's easy to assume that this has always been the central understanding of Chris Christian eschatology, or how we understood as Christians what happens after. But it isn't. This idea, especially when you combine it with millennial reigns in the book of Revelation, is really only a few hundred years old. And throughout the majority of Christian history, it wasn't really the case. Uh, conceptualizations of, suffer of the suffering savior, savior, as I said before, weren't common until the second millennium CE. And though the idea that hell is a place of a in, in Though the idea that hell is a place of eternal torment did not exist, it was not the only prevalent idea of what comes after. Now, I, I hope I didn't lose too many of you, because I, I try to track these things as sort of a journey, you know, as a drive, and I just took a hard turn. So I, I don't want to lose any, because I made a real big jump here. I took the ideas that we started with, this idea of what it means to identify with those that we feel are less fortunate than us to what paradise looks like. And I'm going to get to all this in a minute. Because this is not a modern theology, what I was talking about with Rebecca Parker. Though early writers did believe in a celestial eternal proper, uh, uh, celestial and eterni eternal place, like heaven and hell, the purpose was not punishment. The purpose was that all the dead there and all the people living here will find paradise. That's the point of the faith. The point was never, that's the point of most of the words. That's a point of what was centered in Many of the authors from Alexandria, like, like Clement and Origen, and later Gregory of Nyssa, and the people who came under them. Then you'll have folks like Arius. You'll have all the other people who ended up becoming universalists. With the idea that the goal was not that we be the ones who survived. 
and they be the ones who are tormented, but we all are the ones who go to paradise. So, looking at the clock, it's time for me to get to a point. So, I have not done Rebecca Parker's ideas justice. Know this. Understand this. I hope that I get a chance in the future to get deeper into what she gives us in this book. But what I want you to understand is the concept of paradise in the liberal theology. The idea that we are building it, but also the same time we are in it. And if you want the theological name for what this is, it's called radically realized eschatology. Looking at a world around us with wars in Ukraine, Israel-Palestine, and the introductory excerpt that we read with poverty, the idea that we are living in a paradise now, which um, Parker focuses on, is difficult. And I'm going to go back to what Parker said in a book called A House for Hope. The universalist Christians preached instead that God's ultimate purpose is salvation of all souls. Hell was not a post-mortem realm. It is present in the world when greed, violence, and exploitation wreak havoc on human well-being and on the earth. Heaven could be found in this world where love prevails and gifts of life are stewarded with reverence and respect. So this is Parker's central theme um, in much of her work. That we are now in paradise. But as I said, it's hard to see that with wars, with... Uh, poverty, with racism, with the injustice towards others. So as I close, let me get back to Rebecca Jones's original question. Can you expound on this? Instead of there but for the grace of God go I, we should say there by the grace of God am I. I will tie that to, for fun today, Reverend York's statement. Our epiphanies of holy intimacy are a glimpse of the strangeness or the fear of strangers in ourselves. And then I'm going to add Reverend Parker's statement that heaven could be found in this world where love prevails and gifts of life are stewarded with reverence and respect. See, somewhere amidst all this suffering and frustration, this world is created new every morning by those of us who live in it and choose to live in it a certain way. And the simple point is when we seek to create paradise and heaven around us without exclusion, when we are able to identify with and feel wholeness with all those around us, we are currently living in paradise. But when we seek greed, and exploitation, we create torment. This morning, we walk into a church. We're not just creating 
paradise. This morning when we walk into church, we are walking into a realized eschatological heaven, a paradise surrounded by the people that we love. This, morning, this morning's music reminds us that, yes, we are in that paradise, and when we sing together, that makes us a heavenly choir. We could even go as far to call ourselves a choir of angels. Whenever, whenever we laugh together, we are living in paradise. When we gather on Sunday morning, we are in paradise. When we reach out our hands without exclusion, we are living in paradise. When we practice generosity with compassion rooted in human dignity, we are in paradise. When we remember, but for the grace of God am I, that we are the same as those that struggle differently than we do, we begin to understand paradise. It's, an, it's, it's hard in a world where there's too many 24-hour news channels to feel real peace, isn't it? Because there's always something going on somewhere with someone. Yet when we come together, sing together, stay rooted in love, we are in paradise. When we celebrate each day as if it might be our last and allow our joys and sorrows to flow through us like water, embracing and letting go, we are in paradise. But for the grace of God, whatever you think of God, Our paradise is not perfect. So we go forward and we work to build this paradise that we have together here and invite others to it and find paradise in other places. And as you go forward today, I encourage you to focus and to think, how can I help make this world that so many struggle for 